Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Well, hello. Welcome to another episode, number 14 of The Rest is Politics, with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. Today, we're going to be talking charisma in politics. We're going to be talking what Keir Starmer and Labour could learn from little old Portugal. And how on earth Rory Stewart, no less, was trending on Twitter for two days straight during his brief trip back to the UK last week. So, Rory, is this the new sort of Stewart tactic? You head down in Jordan, fly back to the UK, take aim at Boris Johnson on Good Morning Britain, uh, trend for a bit, then fly home. That's it. Seems to seems to be that seems to be the model. <laughs> you did sort of give him both barrels because, of course, you were here the day after the Sue Gray report came out and his rather astonishing response. Well, one of the problems, Alistair, about it is that I'm beginning to feel that um, as it goes on, it's a bit like you used to feel when you went to the United States during Trump's time. You'd open the New York Times, and every time I remember opening the New York Times for about three years, there'd be another article saying they'd found another scandal and that Donald Trump was going to have to resign because what he'd done was so disgusting and outrageous. And of course, as the days and weeks go on, you begin to feel the New York Times is getting hysterical. You begin to feel, well, Donald Trump's not going to resign. What is it this time? They're turning, a, you know, a, 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 they're, they're making a molehill into a mountain. And the whole thing is exactly the way in which we're now going to get trapped by Boris Johnson, which is that you've talked about this before. He, it's a deliberate technique, but if he does this every day, we end up feeling hysterical and people begin to think that we're sort of obsessive. Mm. And he gets into that weird world where sort of um, philandering partners say, well, you know, if you trusted me a bit more, I wouldn't cheat on you so much. <laughs> but this is why on the day he did the ministerial code thing, which did make my blood boil. I mean, basically saying that I know I'm going to get done on honesty, openness, objectivity, selfless, integrity, accountability, and leadership. Therefore, I'll just get rid of them all as qualifications for the job. And I, because I do these mad rants on Instagram from time to time, less frequently since we've been doing our podcast, and I was getting all these people on Instagram saying, do a rant, do a rant, do a rant. And I was thinking, no, do you know what? I'm just going to chill out because I think actually he's toast. And it's a question of when, not if. And if, it, if he does what Trump does and drags it out to an election in a bizarre sort of way, lots of our listeners are saying this, it might be better for Labour. But listen, Rory, before we get kicked off, we, one of the things you did when you did come back to the country, you and I did our first live shows, which were very good fun, two back to back. And I thought those who couldn't be there might be interested in some of the feedback that we got when we did fairly regular show of hands. First off, although there were some Tories in the audience, we discovered that, but when it came to a show of hands on whether Boris Johnson should resign, it was 800 to nil. Uh, on the question of whether our podcasts were too long or too short, it was considered too short. In other words, we should talk even more by about 80%. You surprised me by winning in the vote about whether the time we devote to answers to specific questions. I want to roll through them. You want to give them a bit of time. You won on that one. It was about 80. Now, the very important one, Roy, the very important one was the overwhelming view that you must not call him Boris. That was overwhelming. And the other one where maybe you won, I asked whether 
I bang on about eating too much. The seven o'clock audience <laughs> felt that I did bang on about eating too much. The nine o'clock audience felt I banged on about eating okay. So that may just indicate a link between alcohol and class war. And then I thought the most interesting vote of all was, and this was basically obviously a self-selecting audience, which is why we should pay no attention to them whatsoever on saying that our podcast <laughs> should be longer. Um, uh, but I think the, 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 the bigger issue, uh, which was interesting, is that it's broadly speaking, a, I think, a sort of centre-left friendly audience. Everybody wanted Boris Johnson to go. Hmm. But when we asked uh, whether anybody had any clear idea what Labour's economic policy was, almost everyone having said they'd consider voting Labour. Um, at the seven o'clock, I think there wasn't a hand up, and at nine o'clock, there were just three or four hands. Mm. Well, actually, it was, that wasn't the question you asked. The question was whether they were aware of any of Labour's key policies. And I agree with you. I thought that was uh, alarming um, because, as you say, they were a very sympathetic audience, mainly desperate to vote Labour. We're going to talk about the Portuguese Prime Minister in a moment because I do think Keir Starmer should go and see him. Uh, but before I do, Roy, do you remember the discussion we had about slogans? Yeah. Now, would you like to tell our listeners what you suggested as a Get Johnson Out slogan? Yeah. So let me just give a little preface that one of the main problems in politics, obviously, is we're always trying to produce three, four word slogans. And I am really bad at slogans, just like I'm really bad at book titles. As you're about to prove. As I'm about to prove. So I thought we could campaign on enough is enough. <laughs> well, Rory, in Portugal, first, the good news. I arrived at this conference on COVID in Portugal, and the second person I met was a young man called João Gaspar, who works for the Dos Santos, Dos Santos Foundation. And he came up to me and said in flawless English that I was his hero. So I was to him what Nick Clegg is to you. <laughs> and he then said, he then said, I love your podcast. So there you are. We're dead big in Portugal. Um, but he then gave me a wonderful briefing about the state of Portuguese politics. And do you know the only party that really, the Socialists won the election convincingly, but the other good party that did well was a new populist party. And do you know what it's called, Rory? No, go on. It's called Chenga. And do you know what Chenga means in Portuguese? Oh, does it mean enough? It means enough. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so you are basically a Portuguese populist. That is really what you are. I think. I think enough is enough. It's basically a good, good recipe of populism. It is. My, my, my slogan was in the area of we can be better. Be better. Let's be better. Let's do better. We can be better. Let's be better than this. I think it's really important. And actually, I was on a very, very interesting uh, series of calls recently with Labour voters talking about Europe. And I came out of it with a slightly different view to you, because I know that you've slightly thought that Labour has abandoned the Europe position. They've been too quiet about it. But when I really thought through the issues and thought through the options facing Labour, and as you can imagine, there would have been some people on the call who supported a single market, some people who supported a customs union, some people who are rejoiners, second referendum people. I suddenly thought it would be a complete nightmare for Labour to try to lay out a Brexit position because it would split the party, just as we discovered actually when we were trying to campaign against a hard Brexit, that there were six different versions of alternatives which would tear the country to pieces. And I thought maybe they would be better not talking about Europe at all, but just talking about integrity and Johnson and running mm. the election on that. Um, I just think that look, I, integrity definitely is right on the ballot paper. And I'm, I take a little bit of self-satisfied pride. And I think I was the first person to really start banging on about the Nolan principles because I've always thought they would do for Johnson. 
And integrity, absolutely. Starmer against Johnson, that has got to go to the heart of it. But I think on the economy, if you don't have, and I'm not saying revisit Brexit as in have another referendum, but if you don't have an argument for how you're going to grow the economy in part by improving our trade relations with the European Union, and if integrity also means grown-up serious politics, that's the other reason why I think it has to be done. Maybe the answer is to actually attack what the bungled version of Brexit that Boris Johnson is delivering, rather than getting into the specifics of whether you're going for a customs union or a new trade relationship. Just say, look what you're doing to the automobile industry. Look what you're doing to farms. I'm just thinking here, if you were a Labour tactician. I, th- I, th- I think if you were to say that um, whether you voted Brexit or you didn't vote for Brexit, I don't think even its most ardent supporters would admit that it is not going according to plan. It is not delivering as promised. And we're going to have to develop new and better trading arrangements with our European partners, because that's fundamental to our economy. Would you agree with me that if Labour came out and said, for example, they were in favour of a customs union, that would be an amazing gift to Boris Johnson, and he'd absolutely love that, and he'd do his best to make hay with that? Well, he might do, but Boris Johnson, if he's still there, which I don't think he will be, but if he's still there, Boris Johnson's going to accuse Labour of wanting to rejoin the European Union, whatever. So it doesn't really matter. What matters is that they have a position that the public will believe, and let Johnson do all his kind of lying on propaganda. The reason why the way, by the way, why I think it'd be very good for, and he may already know Antonio Costa, I don't know, but Costa is a very, very interesting guy. This is the Portuguese Prime Minister. He's the Portuguese Prime Minister. He's in his third term, but he's only recently, just a few months ago, actually won his first election with a majority. His first election in 2015, he won, he he came second, but he put together, it wasn't even a coalition, it was an agreement with communists, with the hard left, and he formed a government, and that lasted for four years. And then there was another election, and pretty much the same outcome, with an even looser arrangement. And then the communists and the left parties, they provoked a budget crisis. The president called a general election, which was held earlier this year, and he's won his first majority. And so he's now a third-term prime minister with his first majority government. Now, if you think of how hard it's going to be for Labour to make the leap from where they were in 2019 to where they need to be for a majority. I'm just thinking if you're Keir Starmer, and maybe your route to a majority is a minority, I don't know. I actually think it's all up to play for at the moment. But I just think Costa, everybody you talk to there, including this guy, Gaspar, they were all saying he's a very, very wily operator, very, very political. And he rooted his messaging in his left of centre but he was very much on the centre bit rather than the left when it came to the campaign. And he also virtually destroyed the Social Democrats, who are, it's weird terminology there, but basically they are the Tory party. The Social Democrats is the Tory party. So one of the things that I I think is fascinating about Portugal is, of course, the most famous Portuguese politician, ex-Prime Minister, is Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, who was a Portuguese socialist, Prime Minister from 1995 to 2002. and it's interesting the way in which Portugal is, seems to be developing a reputation for producing sort of quite dignified, interesting figures like Guterres who go on to, to occupy international positions. Or am I stretching that a bit? No, I don't think you are. I really don't think you are. In fact, I think I would not be at all surprised if Costa goes down that same route. In fact, I quoted Guterres in my speech at this COVID conference because he said that the United Nations had failed in relation to COVID. Um, but that's something that we've talked about before. No, I think that the other thing that Costa did very, very well, he was deputy to Socrates when Socrates was prime minister. And of course, Socrates is now 
you know, in the middle of a pretty heavy corruption trial. And yet Costa managed to insulate himself from that and seems to me to have an awful lot of respect uh, from the public. So, no, I, I think you're right. And I, I do think the other thing that's really interesting about Portugal, the, you know, we've talked about the media and Germany and being more serious and the Portuguese media is the same. It's very, very serious. And I think it does produce more. They have a more serious debate. No, I, I think I think it's a very, very good point. I think Portugal is one of those countries that 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 is producing very, very high quality politicians. I must tell you a story. I met one of them, um, the former foreign minister, Jaime Gama, uh, and it was, <laughs> he was at this dinner that I was at, and I, I was sitting next to him, and he said, um, "I've always wanted to ask you, is it true?" that you said to Robert Cook, who was my opposite number when I was foreign minister, that you said to him, Robert, you have to choose between your wife and your mistress. <laughs> and it just sort of did my head in because there I'm in Portugal. I go to these places partly to get away from stuff and nonsense here. And of course, that is one of those kind of myths that has yeah, followed amazing, me around. Amazing that it goes. Um, listen, can we just do one second before we move on? Your, your subject, Germany, Schultz and Ukraine. Yeah. So there's been a lot of reporting in the British newspapers. Times read a leader, I think, today, um, really emphasizing the way in which he pledged support to Ukraine that he didn't really deliver, pledged armored vehicles in March and didn't deliver, that different types of armored vehicles haven't turned up yet, and that this is somehow associated with his declining popularity in Germany. Have you got an insight into that? Well, the first one, I think, to, to say in Scholz's defense, they have done a huge amount on the humanitarian, huge. I mean, we talk about the refugees that we've taken. They are taking taking tens of thousands more. Um, I do think that the the so-called Satan vendor, when he was saying this is a turning point, when he made all the pledges, that was seen as a very, very big moment. But since then, there does seem to have been this divide that has developed between him, Foreign Minister Baerbock, who is much more kind of maybe closer to what our position might be, um, but I also, th I do think that Zelensky upset the Germans maybe more than he realised when he, when he decided that he didn't want Steinmeier, the president, to make a visit there. So I think it's got a little bit complicated. I also think, in fact, one of the questions we got today was from Jeff Spink pointing out that there seemed to be a bit of a divide opening between the French and the Germans. You know, we've talked about this before. Putin believes he can sit tight, whereas the democracies, it's harder to keep, if you like, these hard lines running. So one of the big questions I think that comes out of this is the extent to which Ukraine does or doesn't matter for domestic political opinion. So clearly, one of the things that many of Boris Johnson's supporters say is, um, we can't topple the prime minister when there's a war going on with Ukraine. So in, in that particular narrative, used within the Conservative Party, Ukraine seems to matter. But in the United States, Biden, who's done an incredible amount on Ukraine, I mean, I think, as I yeah. said before, has put in 10 times as much as any other country, twice as much as all the other countries combined in support to Ukraine, gets basically no credit for it at all. Mm. And yet in Germany, it looks like Schultz is being damaged by his Ukraine position. So it's, it is it is interesting because one of the things that you're also known for is not just your, your comments about wives and mistresses, but this idea that that in the end, foreign policy doesn't really matter in terms of your, your votes. I should just say for the record, I did not say to Robin Cook, choose between your wife and your mistress. I said that the newspaper was about to do him over. 
it was for him to decide what he was going to do. But all I would say is my advice would be that he should opt for clarity. That's what I said. Anyway, that's uh, that's by the by. Um, and no, I do think leadership matters. And I think there are there is a political sport to be built in having a reputation as a leader in the world. No doubt about that. Why do you think that even though it's complete nonsense and a total myth and there's not a newspaper or a commentator outside Britain that has ever said Boris Johnson is leading the international coalition. But why do you think they're saying it all the time? Because they know that actually that can, that can build support. So I, I think it is important. But I think, the, I think the German position is just very, very complicated and interesting. I mean, it is a big shift for them to get to a position where they're seen, if you like, as a, as a warring nation. Um, and Schultz's personality is, I mean, this word is, this word surgent, which means it's a bit like John Major, when John Major, when the word dithering was attached to Major, it's a bit like that. And it's being used all the time at the moment. Um, and that, you know, that can, that can damage leaders. And, and particularly as he's so kind of, so, so kind of young in his presidency, in his chancellorship. It's also interesting, the dynamic between a leader's character their reputation, their government and their foreign policy and the way those different things come together. Not not to keep going on our favourite subject, but I'm quite struck by the problem that the British Foreign Office now finds itself in. I'm, I'm travelling a lot at the moment. So I meet diplomats, British diplomats, diplomats from other countries all the time. And one of the problems, I think, which goes to the heart of the British Foreign Office is that people who join, like me, I joined the Foreign Office in 1995, felt that they were able, quite comfortably, we were trying to feel we could go into meetings, hold our head up high, lead with the Union Jack, and talk about rule of law, democracy. And there was a sort of sense that we were projecting ourselves a kind of quiet, moderate, orderly country. The problem now is that it's very, very difficult. It's not just that our international position has faded. It has. Obviously, countries like China are now much, much wealthier than Britain. But it's also that it doesn't sound convincing. So even if the British Foreign Secretary says the right thing about Ukraine... Which she doesn't. But even if she says the right thing, right, the words are not going to come across because people will think, wait a sec, this is a government that has a reputation for lies or this is a government that is talking about international law, but we know that you're perfectly prepared to break international law. And I think that does become become problematic. Well, I think there's a very there's a very good example of that today, which is in, in some ways an unusual one. You had the Champions League final at the weekend, Liverpool against Real Madrid in Paris. Something obviously went very, very badly wrong with the policing. Um, because of the history of Hillsborough and Liverpool fans at Heisel and all that, there's all that stuff that gets churned out. But if you listened, I, I watched a very good report on Sky Sports News by a guy who just watched it all unfolding. And it's clear that the policing just was not very good. They were bottlenecking thousands of supporters through this tiny gap. They were tear gassing and pepper gassing people who were literally just in a queue. Um, and there's a, there's a French minister today saying, which I don't know, it sounds extraordinary to me that that about 70% of the fans were arriving with fake tickets. Now, that, I reckon, is not true, OK? I don't know, but I'm guessing that's not true. But it's very hard for the government to come out and say, well, why are they lying about this? When every single person in Europe, I mean, everybody I spoke to in Portugal, politicians, business people, media people, campaign people, charity people, if Boris Johnson's name came up, 
It was either a pained look or a smirk or a sort of, you know, what the hell is your country doing? So let's, that, that brings us to, I guess, the, the thing we keep coming back to, and which is very, very current now, which is, are people going against Boris Johnson? Why might they go against Boris Johnson? Why might they not? And, and let's just quickly just remind people who aren't geeky followers of this stuff. Very well done for saying Boris Johnson there, Rory. Very well done. You listened to our listeners. Well done. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alistair Campbell, very much for that. Um, the, the key thing is to just quickly, uh, maybe just explain the rules for people who aren't paying complete attention. So there are, um, there were 360 MPs since then there have been some resignations, but 15% of those have got to send a letter into the chairman of the 1922 committee. 1922 committee is a committee of conservative MPs. Which was formed committee. in 1921. Ah, very good. Uh, and so 15% is 54 letters have got to go in. If the 54 letters go in, immediately a leadership election is triggered. And you then have to get a majority of the Conservative MPs voting for you uh, in the House of Commons to survive. If you survive, you're not allowed to have another leadership challenge for another 12 months. So this is what happened actually to Theresa May, mm. the end of 2018. December, the letters went in, it was triggered, she won. She didn't win very well. She just got to 200 and her opponents got up to about 120. But theoretically, she would have been then safe to the end of 2019 off the back of this. And in the past, when this has happened, that sort of narrow margin might lead someone to resign. The thing we know about Boris Johnson is obviously, however narrow the margin is, he's not going to resign. It doesn't automatically mean there will be a contest, because what, what if there are no challenges? Now, we know we're hearing about Hunt and these guys. Do you think anybody within the cabinet will challenge on that basis? So you don't need a challenger. All there's got to be is a vote of no confidence. So all you're going to be asked to vote on the first time round is, do you have confidence in Boris Johnson? That's what you'll file through. Right, on the and if he time. passes that, what happens? If he passes that, there can be nothing for the next 12 months. And if he fails that, then the leadership contest starts. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult to get up to the numbers that are going to be needed to take him down. Because you're going to get up to, you know, over 175 MPs are going to have to vote to get rid of him, which is much more than the 54 who sent the letters in. And they don't have to be public, do they? It's a, it's a private. It's a, it's a private ballot. So there will be many people we don't know about who, in the privacy of the ballot, will come out and vote. And I think that can make a difference. And that, that affects, I think, one thing that's going on. You, you often ask in this podcast, why are more Conservative MPs not standing out and criticising Boris Johnson? And there are many reasons for that. One of the biggest reasons is that if you do that and he survives, you then have a big, big problem as a Conservative MP in the next election because your opponents are going to put all over the election literature. This guy said Boris Johnson was a terrible human being, terrible prime minister, complete liar, not fit for the job, and he's campaigning for him. But that's why they've, that's why they've got to do it in bigger numbers and with better organisation. What are they all doing? We, we should talk a little, we said we're going to talk about, about charisma, and I looked up a the dictionary definition of charisma. It says, compelling attractiveness and charm that inspires devotion in others. Now, I don't find him attractive or charming, but I can see that he does inspire devotion in some. But who would you say were really, really, by that definition, who would you define as really charismatic modern politicians? It's very, very difficult to see them in the UK context, partly because of the way in which we relate to them. We see them in the very intimate setting of Parliament where they seem very sort of shabby and ordinary. The press knock into them hard. 
Whereas in the United States, it's much easier to、mm. see with somebody like President Obama, Clinton, incredible sort of charisma and eloquence, and I guess probably Bill Clinton before. All right, why don't we take a break and then we'll come back and 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 talk a bit more about who has it and who doesn't have it and whether you think Boris Johnson still has a bit of it. Brilliant. Let's do that. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Paston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini budget, and now I'm talking to the Prime Minister at that time of extreme chaos. Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to the rest is money now wherever you get your podcasts. So, welcome back to the rest is politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And just before we get back to the issues of the day, home and abroad, a little piece of news. Some of you may know it already. We have been genuinely staggered by the number of questions you've been sending into Rory and me, sort of averaging between six hundred and eight hundred a week. And we're conscious that we've not been answering nearly enough of them. So, from this week, we are adding a second podcast, which will be used solely for the purpose of answering as many of your questions as we can. You ask us anything you like, we try to respond, and we're calling it. How original is this going to be? The rest is politics. Question time. It'll be in the same podcast feed, but just on a Thursday morning. So that's Wednesday for the regular show, which we're doing now. Thursday for question time. All in the same place, wherever you get your podcasts. So, Rory, during the break, I'm sure all sorts of names popped into your head. Charisma. Who's got it? And so I was, I was obviously banging on about Obama.、Um, I think it's very important to, to 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 understand that we think about charisma in two different ways, don't we? The traditional way I think in which people thought about it was as something almost divine, magical, God-given was the kind of early early understanding when the Greeks. That's the other definition、it. in the dictionary: divinely conferred power or talent. Yeah, and then then charisma becomes something almost magical and imbued with values and. And that's a pretty rare sort of thing.、Um, often today, when we talk about charisma, we talk about somebody being charming. It actually, comes from the same root. Charisma and charm comes from the same root. And and that's, I guess, about the idea that somebody who's charming can talk us into accepting something that somebody else that lacked that charm would not be able to do. So, if we look at Boris Johnson in that lens. I think he completely fails on the first one. He's not some guy who's going to divinely inspire loyalty. He's not somebody with sort of God-given grace. But what he does seem to have is an extraordinary ability to kind of get away with things, and that's to do with techniques he's developed over thirty-five years to bluff, to evade, to sort of do strange kinds of apologies. He's very kind of cunning in the ways in which he. Is able to to sort of apologise without ever quite、mm. acknowledging what he's done wrong. But so those would be bits of, I suppose, yeah, his charm. But it's probably not what we mean by charisma. No, and I think I think I remember when Kim Darroch, who was the ambassador in Washington, and Trump dumped on him, and then Johnson, as Foreign Secretary, refused to defend him. But I remember Kim Darroch saying that when he first met Johnson,、uh, when Johnson was starting to see Trump. 
All he was really interested in was how Trump communicated and how Trump operated. He wasn't really interested in foreign policy. He wasn't really interested in this great trade deal that he's never going to get. He was interested in how Trump did what Trump does. Um, and I guess you know, you'd have to say on, your, on, on part of your definition, persuading people to do things. I mean, he persuaded people to vote for Brexit. He persuaded people to vote for him. I'm so sure. I think it's given that it was a pretty tight vote, 52-48, I think there's a very strong case to be made that he made history, that if it hadn't yeah. been for Boris Johnson, it may, might not have gone in that direction. The name that popped into my head when you were saying it's about the charm, but it's also about the values and so forth, I think was probably Nelson Mandela. Um, now, Nelson Mandela had enormous charisma. Um, and it was sometimes, I mean, he was the only person, I think I've t- said to you before, the only person apart from Diego and Maradona who made the hair on my neck stand up when I was in his presence. <laughs> I, I just felt something. And the other, the other story I want to tell you about Mandela, and this, this relates actually to some of the Partygate stuff. Do you know the stuff that really offended me in that report? Well, lots offended me, but the thing about how rude everybody was to the cleaners and the messengers and the yeah, 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 yeah. custodians, because yeah, yeah. they are some of the best people in the government. I was, honestly, there's so many occasions when I was really under the cosh and you get the lift from, there was a guy called Bill who was a messenger who always used to come in and just say, basically, don't let the bastards get you down. You're a better man than they are. He'd always sort of say something like that. There were lots of them. And there was a lovely woman called Monica um, who loved Mandela so much. And she, she Monica still sends me a birthday card every year. And she, she, she asked me to get Mandela's autograph on her book. And it's the only time I ever took any of those things on a trip because, you know, everybody wants to get Nelson Mandela to sign their book. But I did it. I did it for Monica. And Mandela just had this sort of, you can think how irritating that is for him, but he just had a charm. He had a magnetism. He had a beautiful voice. And I'll never forget the first time that he came to a Labour Party conference and it just like, you know, Tony was there. and But Mandela was just in a different league. And I can remember Tony once saying, to them, I think I've said to you this before, they were having an argument about Libya. And Tony said to him, God, Nelson, the trouble is you can come out with any old crap, but the truth is nobody dares challenge you because you're basically a saint. It is amazing. that is. I, I always think one of the problems, actually, when we talk about politics is that because in school, understandably, people study Nelson Mandela, they study Gandhi, they study Martin Luther King, a lot of children get the impression that politics is going to be at that sort of heroic, saintly level mm. and, that, and that therefore they feel incredibly disappointed when they discover, firstly, the nature of our political system, the fact that often the things we're talking about seem very, very trivial and small by comparison. Because, of course, those guys that you're studying that inspire you, the great politicians, are fighting to end apartheid or they're fighting to throw the British Empire out of India or they're fighting to turn over civil rights. And you get yourself into, you know, what are the big debates in British politics? They will be things like, do we or do we not put a windfall tax on energy companies, which is something which unfortunately, incredibly important though it is, isn't going to, in five, ten years' time, be something that's going to excite... Or or it's it's, do we have recycling targets or... Yeah, do we yeah. have cycle lanes? Or There's actually a question this week, from Jeremy Lane, do, should politics and democracy be taught in schools? I've always been in favour of that, including primary schools. 
Absolutely, including even private schools. But one of the no primary, I say. You're obsessed with private schools. Really, no, get I'm away from this. Get away from this I'm private school obsession private. of yours. No, I think I think it's really important. But the problem that I face, I obviously went to every primary school in my constituency and every secondary school. So I would go around. I guess that would be dozens of schools, and I'd often go around every year, see them repeatedly. But it is important, of course, to understand that the teachers teaching often have a very idealistic, unrealistic idea of what a politician's role is. Mm. And so when I talk to primary school children and try to get them to understand what they thought the MP for Penrith and the Border would do, one of the main things is they didn't really understand that I'd go to London. They thought that the MP for Penrith and the Border should stay all the time in Cumbria. Actually, Gavin Barwell's got a lovely, lovely comment about this. He says when he would go to schools, he'd say... Looking at me, what kind of MP do you think I am? Do you think I'm an MP who has come from a working class background, represents Croydon, has lived in Croydon all his life? Or do you think I'm somebody who got a scholarship to a private school and then got a top degree from Oxbridge? Right? And their hands would go up in both directions. And his kicker would be, he'd say, both. And what you don't understand is that politicians are spinning you with their personal narratives all the time. They choose which side of you they want to show you. I love that. I love that. And I, I'd love to see more MPs taking the risk of exposing some of this strangeness to people. So it's not just all about Mandela. It's really making people understand a bit of the, the weirdness of politics. There was another question, which, which I, I can't find to give the name of the person who asked it. He was called Philip. He was not a fan of the SNP. said that there was a, a booklet that's being studied in, in Scotland, which is sort of full of pictures of Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish cabinet and this is their way of explaining how politics works and so forth. Now, I've not seen it, so I don't know whether the criticism's fair. But I guess there is always that risk when you talk about teaching politics in school. I mean, can you imagine what we'd be teaching politics in school if Michael Gove had been the person in charge? Here's, here's another thing that struck me as interesting. Um, we've been talking, obviously, a little bit about this horrifying uh, tragedy in Texas and gun control in the United States. Here's a question. It's a bit unfair question to you, but... What do you think the latest, most reliable research suggests American public opinion is on gun control? Uh, well, I don't know how you define reliable, but every survey I have seen or seen quoted shows overwhelming favorability for gun control. I agree with you. That's what I was seeing. And then I decided to dig into it. I couldn't agree more. I've been going around telling everyone that 70% of Americans are in favor of Is it not control. true? It's not true at all. Um, I've spent the day looking into this. It's basically... Absolutely 50-50. At the moment, there's about 52% that want more control, 48% against. And interestingly, it's actually declined. In 1992, 78% of Americans wanted uh, more control on guns, and it's dropped to 52%. And if you look at, you know, people say that it's just the NRA, but only 12% of Republicans want more gun control. 88% of Democrats want more gun control. And 45% of independents. It was a revelation for me because I, it made me misunderstand the politics of this. Basically, the truth is that if you're a Republican politician, it's not true that actually there is any obvious route through. But we have, you, we, you know, you've talked a lot about the need for a written constitution. And of course, the Americans have a written constitution. But I would argue that one of the reasons for those figures is that most Americans don't know what their constitution says. And the one they go on about bearing arms, it isn't about everybody having the right to carry a gun and go around killing each other. It's about, it's about militias, it's about political militias back in the day being able to defend themselves when they're up against forces of 
<laughs> disorder. That, that, that's completely true legally. I, I, but it's also, I think, very, very strong cultural phenomenon. So 40% of Americans live in a household that has a gun. And for about half of the people who are in favor of, of less gun control, Republican voters predominantly, um, they say that guns are central to their identity. This is particularly true in rural areas. And 74% of them say that it's essential to their liberty. So it's very difficult, I think, looking at another country. And I, I'm always struck by this. I'm married to an American. I, I taught in the United States. Yeah, that sense of how alien a culture that can seem so close to us is. It's very, very difficult for us to relate is, to. Is your wife in the room with you? You looked up in a, in a defensive manner there. No, I can assure you. And she is very much a Democratic voter, very much in favour of gun control, <laughs> would not like you to get the impression that she's living in rural Alabama with her guns. While we're on American politics, my highlight of last week was going to the ABBA Voyage concert. Oh, yes. And are you wearing the same shirt or do you just have a lot of very colourful shirts? Well, the one I had with the ABBA necklace, which yeah, I've, I've now given away. That was, that was a photo too far. And there was an amazingly positive report in the Daily Mail about your fashion sense. I saw but, that, yeah. yeah. Alistair was supporting a paisley shirt and a smart blazer. Yeah. <laughs> but, Rory, let me tell you, if the next time you're in London, you've got to see it. I don't, I've always said there, there are two sorts of people in life. People who love ABBA and liars, okay? <laughs> everybody loves ABBA. Everybody should love ABBA. Everybody has a favourite ABBA tune. Mine is Thank You for the Music. And I also love the new one, uh, Could Have Danced With You or something. But the, fa the fact is, it is one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen in my life, where we were sitting a few rows from the real ABBA who were there with these avatars, and we were sitting behind the body doubles who had recorded all the moves of the bodies that you were seeing moving. And if you went up onto the stage and tried to prod any of these unbelievably realistic four people, there was nothing there. It was just artificial intelligence. And it was utterly mind-blowing. And I loved every single second of it, but I did wake up the next day thinking, I wonder if Donald Trump has got a team working on avatars of all his possible opponents. I wonder if Boris Johnson might be developing avatars of Keir Starmer eating curries in Durham. Uh, it was so realistic. I can't even begin to describe it, what it was like. I also think there's something sort of incredibly sort of postmodern and weird about what you've just described. So you're sitting there mm -hmm. with the real ABBA, who are presumably ageing people. One of them had a walking stick. On the stage is a sort of replica of them. With backing music being performed today and with film around it and lights around it that are being done today, it was mind-blowing. It was honestly mind-blowing. It was, and you were so, partly because we were sitting behind these four people who were so excited. They were young dancers. They were so excited. They were crying. This was years of work coming to fruition. But on the stage, once you forgot who and what they were, once you forgot that the King of Sweden and his dancing queen were bopping away to your left, once you forgot that Benny and Bjorn were down there, you were just seeing ABBA live in concert. It was, it was, I can't describe it. it. You've got to go and see it. So does that mean that, you know, we would be able in 10 years time to see the six-year-old Mozart playing, playing his piano in front of us on stage? Well, that is exactly what I said to my now good friend Bjorn from ABBA. I said, would it not be amazing if we could actually see Mozart and Beethoven and these guys performing? And that may happen. That may happen. And what it also means, I think these guys are all interested in legacy. The Beatles. Why have the Beatles been releasing all these films and writing all these books and Paul McCartney's lyrics books and ABBA 
It's about legacy. That, that stuff that I saw the other night, you'll be able to watch it in 100 years. It's really weird. And pretty soon, I think some creepy person's going to put it on their tombstone. And since we're at Tombstones and Deaths, we've got to the end of our podcast. Pleasure as always, Rory. Glad to see you're in such good form. And hope you've enjoyed listening, everybody. And you'll get a second helping tomorrow. The rest is politics. Question time. All your questions, our answers. See you then. Bye-bye.